All right. Good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Um, hey, I just I just want to take a moment. I know that I um, gave just a brief intro. Uh, the Carnes family was was going to be with us. Nate was going to lead in our, our digital bulletin that goes out this week. But I just wanted to take a minute just to again uh, express my uh, appreciation for you coming. Um, I, I, I yeah. When, when we first started praying and, and feeling that uh, God was, was really serious, was, was prompting uh, that, that he was going to play in a church here in this place and that he wanted us to be a part of it, uh, one of the very first uh, places we went for prayer and guidance was uh, the Carnes family's living room. And uh, every Sunday I preach out of a Bible that in the inside of the cover uh, was given, presented to me by Nate Carnes. So uh, having them here, I just really appreciate you guys and, and all of those things. Although I will also say on a less flattering note, when I was standing on that ladder, this morning I had to get on a ladder to fix a curtain up here. And I, I did have a flashback to a time after the tornado when I fell off a ladder. And after just briefly checking to make sure I was alive, <laughs> Nate rolled over laughing at me. I mean, we're talking like we're talking like 12 feet. It was pretty significant. And he just briefly checked to make sure I was alive. But uh, we love you guys and thank you for being here with us. Today we're going to be continuing we're a little over halfway through our Galatians series, which is uh, titled Jesus Plus Nothing. So I'll give you just a quick recap of where we've been. If you've been with us at all, you know that the book of Galatians was written in response to some false teaching that was beginning to stir up within a young church. Paul had helped to plant this kind of network of churches in the Galatian region, and these were a group of people that were saved by grace and grace alone. They knew nothing of religion or tradition, but they were rescued by the good news of the gospel through the power of the Spirit. And so uh, this, these churches are planted, Paul spends a lot of time with them, and then Paul leaves, and not too long after he leaves, he gets word that some of the Jewish believers in the area had begun to become part of the church and have begun to convince these young believers that, well, actually, it's not just Jesus. It's not just grace alone. It's grace plus you need to recognize all of these Jewish customs and so on and, and so forth. And so Paul gets word that this young church, this young network of churches he helped to plant, that now all of a sudden they're believe, beginning to believe in a perversion of the gospel. And he is, he is both heartbroken and furious. And so he writes this bold letter to a group of young believers who he loves Tremendously, And last week, or two weeks ago, the week before Shalom Sunday, we looked at Galatians 3, and we see at the beginning of Galatians 3 that Paul challenges the church with this question. He says, like, were you rescued by grace and now you're being perfected in the flesh? Like, he, he reminds them, like, do you not remember where you came from? Did you were, were you rescued by Jesus, but now somehow you're growing because of something that you do? And then he concluded the chapter, the verse before where we're going to enter into today, by uh, saying this, this is Galatians 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so Paul, uh, here today in, in verse 4, he wants to remind them of the right place of the law and how God used that for a time to bring them uh, to where they are today. And so um, I am going to pray, and then we'll start off with verse 1. Father, thank you for this day. And uh, Lord, thank you for your word, that uh, your word is powerful, that your word alone changes hearts. Uh, Lord, that your word alone reminds us of the gospel, that it is, uh, it is, it is the sustenance we need just to get by on a, on a day-to-day -day basis. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us a hunger for it 
and uh, that just this very day you would you would change our hearts and make us more like you uh, by the power of it. And I pray uh, that you and you alone would do these things. And I pray these things in your good name. Amen. So in verse 4, he has just reminded them of their heritage. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so he says, you've been made heirs because of the promise that was made to Abraham of the Savior that would come. And then in verse 1, he says this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Okay? But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. So he's telling them, like, you are heirs according to the promise. And a child, in this time, a child might be the eventual heir to an estate. But as a young child, like, a child probably still had less freedom than even a high-ranking slave would. So he's saying that you were heirs to what would, would come, but ultimately you needed a guardian. You needed something to provide safety in that time. In both Jewish and Greek culture, there was a significant emphasis placed on coming-of-age rituals. These rituals, they indicated that a child was no longer a child, but was now a legal heir to the inheritance that they would receive. William Barclay, in his commentary, says, There was a Roman custom that on the day a boy or girl grew up, they offered his ball. A boy offered his ball, and the girl offered her doll to show that they had put away childish things. And so Paul says uh, that the, the law had a purpose, and the law provided safety for a time until at the fullness of time, God would bring forth his, he would bring his redemptive plan to completion in Christ. And so he, he, he'll, he'll uh, get to that in verse 3. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary powers of the world, the elementary principles of the world. He says in the same way. So he's drawing a comparison here. This is, it means he's, he's using this analogy and drawing it in comparison to our own spiritual condition. We are, in Galatians 3, we saw that we are sons of God through faith in Jesus, as Galatians 3.26 declared, and that we're heirs according to the promise that God made, that from the beginning of time, God had a plan to redeem us, to redeem his children, and he gave that promise to Abraham that one day all would be made as it was, and that Abraham was an heir according to promise. And that, and then in Galatians 3, verses 24 through 25, he said a somewhat peculiar thing. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so the law was this guardian for a season. The law provided an instruction book for safety, but it was only meant as a guardian until ultimately Christ came. And then there's the, the law is, is still an instruction book that gives us value and points us to the perfect holiness of Christ. But ultimately, the law was always pointing to the anticipation of Christ's coming. It often, uh, it often feels like when we read the Old Testament, and I'm, I, I feel this sometimes, when we read the Old Testament, it sure seems like those people have a a lot more access to God than we do. I mean, when you're walking around and a bush catches on fire and God's speaking to you, it seems like that's an access that many of us can't relate to. But the truth of the matter is, they didn't have 
Christ in them. Like they didn't have the Spirit dwelling in them. Those those kind of these God verbally speaking in some of these um, incredible events we see in the Old Testament were necessary to protect and guide a group of people who had not been granted the gift of the Holy Spirit within them. We actually have closer access in many ways, and that the Spirit now dwells in us. And so the the law was meant as a guardian for that time until Christ would come. And then the the law did something else. It it led us to bondage because ultimately we couldn't meet its demands. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the law declares all or nothing. To follow what what Paul is trying to get this young church to understand is if, if you seek to find your identity, if you seek to find your righteousness in the law, it's all or nothing. You either keep the whole thing or you are guilty of, of breaking all of it. And so we, we talked about, obviously, the law was totally insufficient to change hearts, and the law is still totally insufficient to change our hearts. And so that leads us to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That, ver- that, that section there, it starts off in verse 4 with this phrase, but when the fullness of time had come, that Paul's reiterating to him that the idea behind this phrase is when the time was perfectly right. Jesus came at just the right, perfect time in God's redemptive plan, when the world was perfectly prepared for God's work. And this was a, this was a struggle for believers before. I mean, you, you see it in the Psalms, you see it in Job, just this crying out of like, when are you coming? Like, when are you going to fix things? You've given us these promises. When are they going to come to fruition? But Paul reminds them that God came, that God acts at the perfect time as he sees from a perspective from which we cannot see. James Boise and his commentary um, on this passage says, It was a time when the Roman Empire extended over most of the civilized earth, and when travel and commerce were there, therefore possible in a way that had formerly been impossible. Great roads linked the empires of the Caesars, and its diverse regions were linked far more significantly by all the pervasive language of the Greeks. Add the the fact that the world was sunk in a moral abyss so low that even the pagans cried out against it, and that spiritual hunger was everywhere evident. And one has a perfect time for the coming of Christ and for the early expansion of the Christian gospel. Paul reminds them, like, God doesn't act unintentionally. But at the fullness of time, Christ came born of woman. Not born of man and woman, but the reference here is, is clearly to the virgin birth. And that Christ was born under the law. That the same um, expectations, the same standard of perfect holiness that you and I are born into, Christ was born into. And he came to redeem those who were under that very law. Because Jesus is fully God, he has the power to redeem us. But because Jesus became man, he was he had the right to redeem us. And that Jesus put on flesh, that God put on flesh and became like us, And then met the demands of the law in the flesh. 
Therefore, doing the very thing that we could not do, and therefore purchasing us out of the slave market of our own sin, our sin that was tied up and rooted in the elementary principles of the world. And he did this remarkably while we were still in sin. That Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in the midst of our, that, that Paul's reiterating to the church that though you, you were once slaves and in the midst of that, Christ came and rescued you from that, paying the demands, paying the ransom for your, that you might be brought to him, that you might be justified in him. Christ rescues not when we have it together and can present ourselves properly, but he comes and takes hold of our hearts in the very midst of the slave market as we bow to our captor named sin. He comes and he reveals himself and, and, and we find in him everything that our souls have ever longed for. All too often, we can forget the places that God has rescued us from. The heart we would have if not for his intervention. It would do you well, Christian, to ask yourself the question, who would I be without Christ? Not only does this question lead us to worship, but it reveals the former captor that has been we have been empowered to stand against that we are no longer slaves to. I think it goes without question that the most famous hymn in America is Amazing Grace. And Amazing Grace was written by a man named John Newton, And he knew well of this truth, of the power that came with remembering from where he had been rescued from. He was only a child when his mother died. He was seven years old. And he became a sailor and went out to sea when he was 11 years old. Pretty crazy. He's, uh, yeah, out to sea at 11. And as he grew up, he became the captain of a slave ship. And he had an active hand in the horrible, terrible inhumanity of the slave trade. He was very engaged in that. But when he was 23, on March 10th, 1748, when his ship was in imminent danger of sinking off the coast of Newfoundland, he cried to God for mercy, and he found it. He never forgot how amazing it was that God had received him, and specifically, he was overwhelmed by the truth that God received him in the midst of just the terrible man that he was. To keep this fresh in his memory, he fastened across the wall over the fireplace mantle of his study the words of Deuteronomy 15.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord our God redeemed you. If we keep fresh in our mind the, the, this truth, like this, the truth of who we be outside of Christ reminds us of where we've been brought because of Christ. That we, we talk about growing in the gospel as both growing in awareness of just how lost I am and dependent I am on him, but at the same time, just how big he is in light of that, that he loved me in the midst of that. <coughs> you have to bear with me this morning. And he did this, that we might receive adoption 
as sons and as daughters. It would be an abundant act of grace if Christ had merely rescued us from the slave market of sin, that, that he merely offer us freedom. Like that alone would be an enormous grace. But God's love for us doesn't end there. He doesn't merely rescue us from our, our captor, but we're elevated to the place of sons and daughters of God by adoption. Like the prodigal, we would be enormously blessed to merely be given a job on dad's land. Like the prodigal returns home and says, like, dad, I've been starving. I would, I would be, your, your servants eat better than I do. I would be grateful just to be amongst them. And if the father had merely overlooked his trespass and allowed him to work for him and be a servant of his, that would have been an enormous, uh, an enormous display of grace. In the same way, God merely rescuing us from our, our sin, giving us freedom, is, is grace uh, in itself. But he does more than that. Despite our treason, despite our living lives turned from him, he puts a ring on our finger and we become heirs to the kingdom of God. That we're not, we're not merely rescued, but we're made sons and daughters. When Paul speaks of this, he probably has in mind the Roman custom of adoption. We're adopted sons, we're given absolutely equal privileges in the family and equal status as heirs. Many of you, many of you know uh, my family story, but not all. Many of you don't uh, anymore. And uh, we, my wife and I, we spent <coughs> we spent ten, the first ten years of our marriage desperately desiring to be parents. We had known from the when we when we were first married that we, we, we felt that God had called us to be adoptive parents. But at the time, early on in our marriage, we got some counsel that we should have biological kids first. One of our professors in, in college suggested that. And looking back, I don't know that I would suggest that. But at the time, we figured, okay, he knows what he's talking about. And then we, uh, we would get pregnant one time and miscarry and never were able to get pregnant again. And we, we went to... Uh, you know, many doctors looked into what was going on, and nobody could ever really give us a, a really a good answer. And so uh, we concluded that the God's calling to us to be adopted parents, obviously, that was confirmation of that. And so then we became foster parents, and that would turn into a trial uh, each and of its own. Like that would uh, turn into years of, of difficulty in walking in that. And then on July 14th, 2013, we had just... Uh, come to the end of a long two-year foster placement, and we were really at a, at a pretty low place. Like uh, that, that hadn't worked out necessarily the way we, we had hoped it would. And um, on July 14th, we 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 had decided to take a vacation, and July 14th was our very first day at the beach. And I remember the night clearly. It was the day we arrived, and um, that night we just I just went out and sat on the shore. And it was just kind of the beginning of this week of us getting away and, and processing uh, kind of what, what God was doing in our lives. And I, I remember that night sitting out on the shore by myself and just praying, you know, what, what, are, what are you doing? You've given us this heart. Would, would you, Lord, would you give us a child? And uh, I had no idea that on that very night, my beautiful middle daughter was being, was being born um, uh, several hundred miles away, and I wouldn't know that for another year. Uh, but God was was being faithful even in that. And those so those first few years, those first couple of years that we had uh, Sadie and, and adopted Sadie, it was just good, man. It was that it was around the same time that we were planting rooted in Northwest Arkansas, and so we had kind of we had got to move away, and 
we moved away to a place where not everybody knew us, and they didn't necessarily know we were adopted parents. In fact, people would say things like, she looks just like you. And just to be clear, like that's the sweetest thing you can ever say to a newly adopted family. So we owned that. Because secretly, like in my heart, I, I didn't want people, I didn't want that to be her thing. I didn't want her to be my adoptive kid. Like I, I, I still, like there, there was a hard time, like when I would have to check when like adoptive parent was an option on the doctor's form. I would, I would just out of spite, like, I'm not checking that box, I'm checking, you know, and uh, it was a really hard thing in me, and so, uh, but then, Millie and Moses came along, and I no longer, you know, had uh, that option, <laughs> I might as well have had a t-shirt for the rest of our days that were adopted parents, we didn't get that uh, opportunity anymore, anymore, and that you know, with that comes people feeling invited to ask all kinds of, of questions that you would never ask anybody else, but that's a blog post for a different day. During And during that time of really having to, I could no longer, like, hide that. Like, this was just, this is transparent now. Uh, it was during that time that God convicted me deeply, and he convicted me. It was beautifully timed where we were planting a church where at one time 75% of Little Sprouts was either in foster care or adopted, so it was really a sweet time for us to be walking in this conviction. Like, God continued to convict me of my own heritage, that I'm an adopted son of the king. Like, that's, that's who I am. That's who I am because of Christ. And so why would I, why would I hide from that identity and not lean into it? Why, why would I? And in doing that, I was, making, I was taking away the beauty of what it was. And God convicted me of that, that that was not an identity to hide from but to lean into. That ultimately, I, I stood before a judge. And I, I appealed on behalf of my children so that they could be given my name and become legal heirs to everything that I have. Everything I have is theirs, just as God did for me. That God, that in Christ, I was justified. The legal demands were met so that, that I became a full heir to the kingdom. That, you know, my kids might, might not get the great end of that deal as far as being an heir. I don't know what there will be to be an heir to, but I'm an heir to the kingdom. That's, totally, that's a totally unnecessary blessing that God has given to me. A demonstration of his true and deep love for us. Like, we can picture somebody helping or saving someone who needs that. But not going so far as to make them part of the family. Like, God could have just rescued us and then let us be. But he goes far beyond that and he makes us his own. He brings us into the family. That's scandalous, okay? Like, that's that's relentless love. That's, I mean, not to, to offend. I don't know where you stand on, on this end, but... That's not unforeseen kiss. I mean, that's on the sloppy wet kiss spectrum, okay? Like, I, I, I'm going to say, like, I lean that direction. Like, you got to go there. When you, when you consider the magnitude of God's love for us, revealed in Christ. And he says, because you are sons, you cry out, Abba, Father. It is fitting that those who are, in fact, sons have the spirit of the Son in their hearts. This gives us both the right and the ability to cry out to God, our Father, just as Jesus did. That we've been given direct access. That the only one who dares, uh, you know, poke the king in the middle of the night and ask for a glass of water is the heir to the kingdom. And we've been given that kind of access to God. And some think that uh, translating the idea of Abba as daddy is too, is too intimate or even improper. And I will confess, I've heard some people make it weird. 
before and make it uncomfortable. And some people think that that's, that's a term that it doesn't necessarily mean that. But James Boise, uh, through some points he makes in the Galatians, his Galatians commentary says this. The early church fathers, Chrysostom, Theodore of Mopsustia, and Theodore of Cyprus, who all came from Antioch, where, where Aramaic was spoken, and they probably had Aramaic-speaking nurses in their childhood, they unanimously testify that Abba was the address of a small child to his father. So however, wherever you fall on the comfort end of the spectrum there, like there's, there's no question that this was the way a child intimately referenced their father. And he says, you cry out, Abba, Father, that we don't whisper that. We don't whisper, Daddy, as if we're hesitant to speak so affectionately. Instead, we cry it out. We need not be fearful of prayer, church, neither publicly or privately. I'm going to be honest. I think some of us are afraid of prayer. We need not be because prayer isn't aimed at anybody in here. Like your words to your father have nothing to do with what anybody in this room thinks. But they have everything to do with the access you've been given to God in Christ. Would you not take that for granted? Would we be a church that prays? And I, I hope and I hope and pray that your hesitancy in prayer is only in public and that it's not also in private. Because, ah, would that not be? We've been given access to the Father. Would we lean into, lean into that? Would we cry out to our Father who allows us an intimate relationship with him because of Christ. Martin Luther said this, let the law, sin, and the devil cry out against us until their outcry fills heaven and earth. The spirit of God outcries them all. Our feeble groans, Abba, Father, will be heard of God sooner than the combined racket of hell, sin, and the law. God's given us access that comes before all the, all, the, all, all the words we hear against us, all the lies that we believe about ourselves. None of those reach the ear, ear of the Father, but our words do. That we've been given that kind of access. And in verse, starting in verse 8, Paul says this. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. <coughs> this is a little bit subtle, but I want you to get this today. Paul's main emphasis in our text today is to earnestly plead with the Galatians to not turn back from Christ and become the slaves of demons. All right, hear me out on this. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. Okay, Paul wants to reserve the term God for the one true God, but he knows that formerly the Galatians were in bondage and to beings which were called gods. And note, he does not deny the existence of these things. He only denies that they have a nature which qualifies them to be called gods. We see this also in 1 Corinthians 8.5, where it says this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and quotations around that, 
Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Interpretation of that is, though he doesn't like the titles they carry, Paul admits that the other so-called gods or lords, that they do exist, whatever they may be. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.20, he makes clear that these beings are demons. He says this, What pagans sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. So in Galatians 4.8, Paul is saying that formerly the Gentile Galatians had not known the true God, but had been enslaved to demons who exercised their power through religious practices. Paul's devastated by the thought that they may want to turn back to the legalism that that enslaved them. Okay, and he uses the example of observing days and months, that the false teachers believed that if you observed these certain days and months and holidays, that that would elevate you to some kind of higher spirituality. This is Jesus plus works. Like, Paul's making clear to them, like, it seems subtle, and it can be so subtle but what the Galatians church is, what the church in Galatia is, is erring on the side of and leaning into is the idea that Jesus plus something else is required for salvation. And it makes sense for the world to see righteousness from their own effort, but not for those who have tasted grace. And he says, you, you want to be slaves to that again? Like you spent your, your whole life trying to attain something you couldn't even scratch the surface of. And then you were given it in fullness based off nothing you did. You want to go back to the way it was? You want to go back to the standard of the law? How can you turn back again to the worst, worthless and weak elementary principles of the world? As Christians, we can place ourselves under the bondage of a works-based cause and effect relationship with God. And it can happen so subtly and so quickly. But that's moving backwards. That's going back to where we were. That's not moving forwards to the kingdom. By writing the term turn again, Paul shows that the Galatians were not turning to a new error, but they were coming back to an age-old error. The idea of a works relationship with God. Now I want you to note this, because this is the subtle and terrifying thing about the world we live in right now, church. This idea which appears good, okay, like it doesn't seem evil to put our, to, to do these traditions, to live out these things, to put our hope in these moral principles. Like that appears good on the surface. We know people outside of Christ who give themselves to things that look good. But Paul says, even these good things, if they're void of Christ, they're the tactic of demons. The enemy has no problem with you living a good life. No problem with that. We often think of uh, that Satan's engagements would be just leading us to, you know, have scary rituals around the fire. And we think of all these kind of outlandish demonism and almost a horror movie. The truth is, Satan has no problem with you living a upright, moral, good life. If... That is the best tactic to you living a Christless life. He will even enable you and help you along in it. You can be the best person, the best nonprofit leader. You can volunteer the most. You can be the most upright, never curse, never chew, never go with girls who do, you know, whatever. 
And if that is what is necessary to keep you from Jesus, the enemy will fully endorse it and put his stamp on it. And that's terrifying, church. We're, we're not called to, to merely good works. We're called to Jesus and to partner with him. In the, and then he leads us in the work that only he can do. The good life is not our dream. It's not our goal. Our goal is to follow Jesus. Warren Wearsby once said, one of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads the, it leads the believer back into a second childhood of Christian experience. And Paul, being deeply discouraged by this, he begins to question whether or not he's labored in vain, knowing that only God can rescue and transform hearts. And that is the, that, that's the, that's the difficult reality of being a pastor. That's the difficult reality of being a Christian, of being a disciple maker, is that we can stack the wood, we can put the kindling in, we can make the conditions right, but we know that only God brings the matches. And Paul, sometimes that's really hard, and he, he labored really hard to put that fire in place, and his, his prayer is ultimately that, that God did indeed like that. And we'll close by looking at this last section, verses 12 through 16. Brothers, I entreat you, because I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You knew it was because of a body, bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul says here in this passage, become like me as I was once like you. Paul's not ultimate, he, you know, he, he's not looking for fanboys, he's not looking for podcast follows, but Paul recognizes where he came from. And he's called where he's been brought to, and he wants people's lives to reflect that. Paul used to live a religious life. Like, he gets it. He, he came from where, they, where, where these false teachers had been. And yet he was hostile to Christ. And now is dependent on Christ and Christ alone. And he wants to, he said, like, I was once like you. I hope that you become like me. I hope that Jesus will do in you what he's done in me. And he tells them, you, you did me no wrong. That's not why I'm saying this. Sometimes pastors can be, and, and teachers can be wounded. Caring for people can weigh on you. And you can begin to use the word as a tool and not as treasure. Okay? Paul wants them to know that's not what's happening. He's not saying these things because he's mad. He's not saying these things because they did something wrong. He's saying, you did me no wrong. That's not my motivation in this. That his motivation in this is his genuine love for them and his hope to turn them back to Jesus. He's not writing these things out of bitterness. It's not a personal vendetta. He just loves them so stinking much. He has a great affection for these people, recounting that that what what that like he watched what took place in Galatia, and he says like it wasn't even my plan. It was only because of an ailment of some sort that he even ended up there, and they immediately showed love to him, and he says that. Are we no longer family because I tell you the truth? We don't know why Paul went there. We just know for some reason he changed course. 
Later on in the book of Galatians, he, he makes a kind of an odd mention about writing largely. And so some people speculate there might have been something wrong with his eyes, but, but we don't know that. But he's recounting these far fond memories of their early days and what he saw in them and the love that he experienced in them. And he says, like, are we no longer family because I speak truth to you? This is a, a great struggle of being a believer and specifically being a believer or a teacher who teaches God's word. If we continually call people to the truth of Scripture, we will lose dear friends and family, but we cannot change course knowing that the Spirit will lead. Now, I only used the term in closing once so far, and then we all agree that I get three of those, so I actually have one more. We're going to read just a couple more verses. Verses 17 to 19 says this 17 to 20. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul tells them that the legalists, they might stroke your ego. They might convince you that your salvation is somehow of your own own effort. Maybe you really are as special as your mom said you were. But their hearts primarily desire to make much of themselves. That any time we put anything in that nothing space, there's an element of our heart that wants to make something of ourselves. Okay? It's the very pride that started in the garden. That... Maybe I can do this myself. Maybe, maybe it's not just about dependence on God, but maybe there's more to me than I thought there was. There's not. There's less. Okay? Like, there, there, there's less. Jesus plus nothing. He reminds them, like, you, you might feel loved by them, but ultimately they're trying to make much of themselves and not Christ. And he says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, Paul loves these people like a father. Watch, he watched them receive the gospel. He watched them go from non-believers in the midst of their sin to being rescued by Jesus. He watched them save. He watched them growing in Christ. Just like he, he has this affection that he compares to watching a young child grow. And he says, I wish I was with you. He ultimately says, I wish my tone could be different. But you are struggling. And they're in danger of leaving the gospel. Like Paul is essentially saying, I wish I was with you and we were just sitting on the back deck drinking tea, talking about baseball. Like I wish that was the circumstance. But when when things get real, when the church is in danger, when believers are in danger, things shift, things change. And Paul says like that, that can't be the case right now. Even though like, there's this desperateness in him that it was. But he says, for I am perplexed by you. Meaning, essentially, Paul's perplexed by the situation that they're in. And how did we come to this place? And and even him saying, like, I fear I've labored in vain. Like, there's an admission of Paul that not even necessarily knowing. Like, I, I labored, I thought I did things right. Did I do that in vain? Paul genuinely loves the people and desires to point them back to Jesus at whatever cost it takes. Paul's heart for the church and his relationship with the Galatians 
paints a beautiful picture of the church and its leaders. The text shows us, I'll just share with you, uh, because these are notes that I made. The text convicted me of principles uh, for a pastor towards the church. He must be willing to serve and sacrifice for his people. He must tell them the truth. He must love his people deeply, never for a selfish motive, including a pause or, or confirmation. He must desire to see more than mere excitement, but zeal for good things. Like Paul doesn't just want to see him happy. He wants to see zeal for the right things. And even though culturally they may look similar, he he knows there's a big difference. And he must desire to see Christ grow in them, not not himself in them. Paul reiterates to them, this isn't about me. I want want more of Jesus for you. And church, that's my hope for you this morning. Don't give your life to lesser things. Cast them aside. You are heirs to the kingdom of God if you are in Christ. Don't don't settle for an identity of anything less than that. Don't believe for a moment that that your life is about what, what you do, but it's about what Christ has done in you and what he intends to let you go with him in doing. And it's only in that identity that, that, we, uh, that we, we find uh, the contentment uh, that, that our heart so desperately desires. And not always easy, not always happiness, but we find true joy where true joy comes from in Christ, in Christ alone, as sons of the Most High God. I will legitimately close, uh, this is my third time, with this quote. Tim Keller uh, once said this, As many have learned and later taught, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Will you pray with me this morning? God, you are all we have. On the days we know it and on the days that we don't, you are all we have. Lord, would you give us boldness? follow you to the places that you send us? Would you give us um, humbleness to put more emphasis on being on our knees than all of the other busy things that, that consume our life? Lord, would you turn our gaze back to our, our identity in you? Holy Spirit, would you do that? Turn our gaze to you this morning. Would we live as heirs to the kingdom? Would we speak to you as those who recognize we're adopted sons and daughters? Lord, don't let us leave. Go home, Lord. Turn on Netflix and and just go back to our, our normal way of thinking. But Lord, would you convict us deeply by your word? Would we lean into you this week, maybe in a way that we haven't for some time? I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make these things true. I pray these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.